this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth at a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, I hope everyone had a fun Halloween. We just had Halloween pass, which is always a fun time of year. And uh, the little kids go trick-or-treating. And my husband and I, we have become like master pumpkin carvers. So every year now we've made it a point to carve something with a theme that usually has theme music with it. So a couple years ago, it started, the theme music thing started with um, Wonder Woman and Black Panther. So we carved those into our pumpkins and then we accompanied them with theme music. Last year, I love Mary Poppins. I have since I was a little kid. I'm like obsessed with Mary Poppins. So last year, I uh, carved a Mary Poppins pumpkin (laughs) and I had the theme music. And then this year, in honor of Star Wars coming to an end, the Star Wars saga, I decided to carve um, a Darth Vader pumpkin and, of course, added the Imperial March to it. I even had it playing outside on my Echo on the front stoop. So when kids came to the door, it would play. It was awesome. So anyway, so that's me being a little nerdy with Halloween. Um, It was cool. So I hope everybody had a fun Halloween and are nerds like my husband and I are. Um, Anyway, so uh, what else was going on? Well, oh my goodness. Again, I always say every week, it's just, we're just inundated with information. But a lot has happened. Uh, the Washington Nationals won the World Series. Good for them. I frankly am agnostic about this because I'm a Yankees fan, so I was disgruntled that the Astros beat the Yankees because it should have been a Yankees-Nats World Series. And then, of course, I would have been rooting for the Yankees. But whatever. The Nats won. Everybody in Washington's all happy about this. And, of course, they went to the White House, and uh, a Nats player decided to boycott because um, his brother-in-law is autistic and he was offended by Donald Trump making fun of an autistic disabled reporter back during the election, among other things. So he said, I can't do it. I'm not going. So he didn't. Hasn't been a good week of sporting out sports outings for Donald Trump. First, he got booed at the Nats game last week at the World Series. Then he went to the UFC fight, the Nate Diaz uh, UFC fight in Madison Square Garden in New York over the weekend and got booed at Madison Square Garden. There were some cheers, but it was certain there were certainly enough audible boos to make it a bit uncomfortable. So, I mean, Donald Trump, man, and apparently at the end of this week, he's going to the LSU game. And uh, I guess third time's a charm. He figures if he goes to Louisiana, he'll get some cheers there. I, I'm not understanding what the point is of Trump going to these sporting events because it hasn't worked out too, too well up until now. But I'm sure it'll be a different environment down there in Louisiana. Um, but, you know, the, the UFC thing, you think a lot of people are like, they're into cage fighting. I love UFC, by the way. But I, I was shocked that he, well, that again, maybe not. It was New York City. He just announced he was leaving. Uh, you know, New York. Uh, Donald Trump has renounced his New York residency. He's now decided he's becoming a Florida resident or already has, claiming it's for tax purposes and that it's that New York is over now because they're so poorly mismanaged, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, well, Donald Trump probably did that because he's getting sued every which way from Sunday in New York. And... Um, he doesn't want to give up his tax returns and God knows what other shady reason he's decided to switch his residency to Florida. Now, 
to play devil's advocate, Florida is a better tax environment. So a lot of wealthy people have fled New York City and and put put the new uh, Florida's like a place like Florida for residency because they don't have a state income tax. It's much more tax friendly for people with means. So there is some some merit to that, but it just seems a little strange that Donald Trump would choose to do that now. He's been a lifelong Republican. I mean, a lifelong uh, New Yorker. Come on. There's something shady going on there. But he's doesn't matter whether he declares his residency in Florida or not. He's still going to have to give up his tax returns eventually. A uh, federal court judge said, yeah, you, uh, you're going to need to give up your eight years of taxes. You can't, there's no, there's no reason for you not to do this. The, the, they rejected the president's lawyer's arguments that he didn't have to. So, of course, they're going to appeal this and uh, appeal it straight to the Supreme Court. I'll be curious to see, we'll watch and see if the Supreme Court actually takes this case up or not. I suspect they may not. And then the lower court ruling stands and, and Trump's accounting firm, Mazars, is going to have to give up his, his taxes to New York State. So stay tuned for that. But the, the RNC spent $60,000. They paid for Trump to attend the UFC fight. And it was Trump, uh, Peter King, Mark Meadows, the congressman, uh, his two sons, those two idiots. And uh, they said that the money cost, it was 60 grand because of catering and security and other costs involved besides just the tickets, the ringside tickets. Well, I don't know if it was money well spent considering he got booed. (laughs) Oh my goodness. What a bunch of idiots. Uh, Coming up on this episode, um... I have uh, Jason Leopold of BuzzFeed News. He's an investigative reporter. Over the weekend, a cache of documents were released, court ordered, that um, surrounding the uh, Mueller investigation. So BuzzFeed News decided to sue and use FOIA to obtain these do- documents. They wanted to see what what was used to craft the Mueller report. So... They sued using the Freedom of Information Act, and Jason explains what that is and the process he went through to get these documents. But he just thought that the American people should see what the primary source documents were used for this investigation, because it gives you more depth and more context for the narrative that was developed for both volumes one and two of the Mueller report. And there are thousands of documents. And of course, the federal government did not want to give that up. They had to go kicking and screaming into court. And the judge ruled in their, in BuzzFeed's favor. And CNN actually joined the lawsuit later on. So it was a joint lawsuit. So both CNN and BuzzFeed News acquired these documents over the weekend. And there's some juicy stuff in there that fills in some of the blanks with uh, people like Steve Bannon, Rick Gates, Paul Manafort, Interesting stuff. So Jason's uh, going to come on and he's I, I talked with him about that and he's going to get into more more detail about some of the, the biggest takeaways from this latest cache of documents. And it t- does tie in to what's happening with Ukraine and impeachment. Um, so speaking of that, so we had a vote finally in the House uh, to open up the next phase of the impeachment inquiry. Democrats finally, Nancy Pelosi said, all right, we'll have the vote because they've been getting lots of information from from testimony. People have been coming up, and it's been pretty damning stuff for Trump. 
in, involving Ukraine. At this point, it's obvious there was a quid pro quo going on. And it looks like Demo- Republicans are going to have to acknowledge that. And their defense is going to be, well, yeah, it was a quid pro quo, but it was it's not impeachable. I don't know if they're going to be able to get away with that argument, but that's really the only argument they have at this point. They're continuing to scream and whine and kick and scream about process, but it's a totally disingenuous argument here, completely, because the process that the, that the Democrats are using now is the same process Republicans used when they were in charge. And they engaged in plenty of closed door, behind closed door depositions and hearings and things when it suited them. Trey Gowdy, I mentioned this before, when he was head of government oversight and they were going after Benghazi, guess what? They had stuff behind closed doors. And Trey Gowdy, on page 68 of the Benghazi report, justified the necessity for that. So when you hear Republicans arguing process, just ignore them because they're lying, they're being disingenuous, and it's because they cannot argue the merits of the facts coming out with all of these career diplomats and professionals testifying that Donald Trump was abusing his power as president to put pressure on Ukraine to get them to investigate his political rival, period. I mean, you know, come on. You have Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who is a um, decorated war veteran. He testified last week, damning stuff. He was so concerned, he went to his superiors twice about that phone call. He was actually on the phone call. He is a Purple Heart recipient. And and Donald Trump and some of his people are really actually trying to attack this guy's character. I think that's a huge mistake. They're going to overstep. So when Vindman and Ambassador Taylor, another decorated war veteran, 50-year public servant, People like that with unimpeachable credentials are are going to testify now in public. It's going to be hard to dispute this, but they're going to try. Trump's already starting that and his people are trying to do that. And I just think the American people who are not Trumpers are going to see right through this. I hope. I think what's going to help the American people see right through this BS is the fact that more transcripts of witness testimony is being released and as I mentioned this week, uh, you had a couple of, of the of witness testimonies um, released, including Gordon Sondland and Kurt Volker. Kurt Volker was the special envoy to the Ukraine, and Gordon Sondland was the ambassador to the EU. Why Sondland was even involved in all this to begin with is beyond me, since Ukraine is not in the European Union. But I digress. Just to remind folks that Ambassador Sondland, I've mentioned him in past podcasts talking about this, he gave a million dollars to the Trump Inauguration Committee. Basically, he bought his ambassadorship. Yeah, he has no diplomatic experience. He was He's a hotelier from Seattle. So that's Gordon Sondland. Now, he testified a couple weeks ago, and he was a little cagey in his testimony. Well... Since his testimony, others have come forward, like Ambassador Bill Taylor, who I mentioned is unimpeachable in his credentials. And it was Taylor who was texting like, I think it's crazy that we were holding up security aid for a political campaign 
and it was Sondland who was like, stop texting, call me. Those, that's who we're talking about here. Well, Gordon Sondland finally had his testimony released this week. And we find out now that he actually went back and revised some things. Well, sure, because others came forward and their testimony contradicted some of his and they directly implicated him like in, in a number of ways. So Gordon Sondland, in his testimony, this does not bode well for Trump or the people who keep defending this. He finally came back and said, yeah, yeah, there was a quid pro quo going on. He tries to play dumb like he didn't really know that in the beginning. OK, whatever. But he he admits that, yes, there was a quid pro quo that he that's what he expressed to. He all of a sudden remembered a direct conversation he had with a Ukrainian official. This is something he didn't remember the first time around. But he's remembered this now. And yeah, maybe I did tell them that um, it's contingent upon a public statement acknowledging that they would open investigations into Burisma, Biden and the 2016 election interference. Oh, I'm glad you remembered that now. Come on. This is a problem. And not only that, he goes on and I encourage people the the testimonies now it's uh, it's public. You can go anywhere on the Internet and read the whole thing. If you don't want to read the whole thing, the Washington Post, the New York Times, there are a lot Politico. They all have really good summaries and excerpts of the most important parts. But he also makes the comment he's asked in his testimony. And I just want to remember, I want people to remember everything in this testimony is sworn testimony. You're under oath. It's different than talking in public or giving an, a, an interview. This is like going in and giving a, 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 an affidavit. You're sworn under oath. You can get in trouble for lying to Congress. Just ask Michael Cohen, who's sitting in jail right now for one of those reasons. He was lying to Congress. Sondland said in his testimony now that we see that's public that he felt that as the time went on and he saw Giuliani's hands in all of this and Trump directed him anything involving Ukraine go through Rudy. He said things became more insidious. That is his word insidious. That's a pretty strong word. He also goes on and says when he's asked about what was happening with this quid pro quo, the holding up of military aid in exchange for a political favor, basically, to investigate a domestic political rival. He asked if he thought what was going on was illegal. And he said, well, I'm not a lawyer, but I would assume so. So this is a Trump appointed ambassador saying that what he saw going on was more and more insidious and possibly illegal, in his opinion. How's Trump going to defend this? Are they going to come out and call Sondland, Sondland an ever-Trumper now? Come on. And then Kurt Volker, he was the special envoy. He, by the way, just to remind people, resigned the day after the whistleblower's complaint came out. And I think he did that so that he was able to testify without any, any problems with the White House pressuring him not to. He said, screw this, I'm done, I'll testify. Now, he, he comes out and says that the, the quid pro quo, he never heard it was direct from Trump, but it was implied. And at this point, everybody knew where it was coming from. And everybody knew that Rudy Giuliani didn't do anything without the president's permission. Let's not forget that on the July 25th call between Trump and Zelensky, he brings up, talk to Rudy. Remember, just go. He Trump's running around like an idiot telling people, read the transcript. These dumbasses are wearing T-shirts now at his Trump rallies. Read the transcript. Yeah, people read the transcript. 
The transcript is not a good look for Donald Trump. He mentions Biden. He mentions the debunked conspiracy theory about the, the CrowdStrike server and the DNC server. He tells Zelensky to work with Rudy Giuliani and Bill Parr. Trump doesn't bring up Ukraine corruption. No, come on. Read the transcript, like as if that's like supposed to exonerate him. It's the complete opposite. And you put that all together with all the testimony of these people. And it's clear what was going on here. And Volcker admits that Giuliani was pushing this debunked, these debunked conspiracy theories. He says he admits that he told Giuliani to stop pushing this information. Don't listen to this Ukrainian prosecutor, Lyshenko. He's not credible. Don't listen to these guys. These are disgraced, corrupt prosecutors in Ukraine. What are you doing? So the career people who are professionals, who don't have a political agenda, who don't have political and financial interests in Ukraine, they're the ones that saw what was going on, warned about it, and brought it to the attention. And this whole thing about the whistleblower, who's the whistleblower? ID the whistleblower. This is a distraction, folks. The whistleblower, first of all, is protected by law, by statute. They're not allowed to be retaliated against, which is why their identities are meant to be concealed. So other people will come forward and not have to worry about retribution or fear for their safety. So this whole thing is about that with Trump constantly tweeting, who's the whistleblower? Where are they at? And you've got these Republicans that are enabling him doing the same things. It's disgraceful. It's witness intimidation on one end. And the other end, it doesn't matter. The whistleblower's complaint has been largely corroborated. So this nonsense that you hear them trying to lie and say the whistleblower was, it wasn't factual. He's been, he's been discredited. That's not true. It's the complete opposite. It literally is the complete opposite. They're just lying to you. (laughs) Is the whistleblower's complaint has been largely accurate. But at this point, it doesn't matter anymore because you have so many other people who have come forward that also have firsthand knowledge, like Lieutenant Colonel Vinman and others who were on the call. So they know firsthand. That's like if you call 911 and you're reporting that there's a fire and the fire, the, 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 the fire department goes and the house is on fire and they put the fire out. Now you want to know, well, who set the fire? Who? Well, okay. So we want to know who set the fire. So you want to know who placed the call? No, we're trying to find out who set the fire. We don't give a shit about who made the call to say the house is on fire. So the person who called said the house is on fire. Here's the address and where you can find the fire. And here's where you can find the equipment and the, and the, and the gasoline that was used. Okay. Well, then you give all these witnesses who come forward and say, yeah, I saw them put, I saw them put the gas on the fire. Yeah. I saw them light the flame. I saw, yeah, they came and put the fire out. We're doing an investigation into the arson. Well, what, but we want to know where's the person who called it in. Where's this person who called it in? It's ridiculous. You don't need the person who called it in anymore. So this is just a distraction about where's the whistleblower, where's the whistleblower. And frankly, shame on every single senator and congressman that is going along with Trump in this, try, in this effort to try to out this whistleblower. Senator Rand Paul did this at a Trump rally this week. Disgraceful. You are a senator, Rand Paul. What are you doing? 
going along with this. This has nothing to do with, oh, you have a right to face your accuser. This isn't a criminal proceeding. And there's a whistleblower protection act that changes those rules a little bit. So cut it out. Stop trying to deceive the American people on this. I mean, most average Americans don't know the ins and outs of the whistleblower protection act. And I get that, but he does. And he's being completely dishonest about it and misleading. I mean, Rand Paul, I mean, Rand Paul was always a little bit of a lunatic. I never liked him anyway. I never agreed with him, but he certainly wasn't a Trump bootlicker in the beginning. He called Trump out for what he was when he ran for president. Now, all of a sudden he's up Trump's ass. What's that about? But shame on you, Rand Paul. Okay. Trying to get this whistleblower outed that, you know, you could put their lives in lives in danger. And for what, for what? And then speaking of shameful performances, Lindsey Graham, once again, in the hall of shame this week, I should start that as like a regular thing, the hall of shame <laughs> every week. Who's in it? Lindsey Graham is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is a plays a pivotal role in the Senate trial for impeachment. Lindsey Graham was asked because this new testimony that's being released is pretty damning for the president's narrative. And Lindsey Graham was like, I don't care. I'm not going to read the testimony. I think this whole process is BS. Really? Lindsey Graham? You're just going to cover your ears and go, la, 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 la. I'm not going to listen. I don't care. Blah, blah, blah. You are the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It is your duty to read the testimony and listen to the evidence and see what's going on here. Your oath is to this country and to the Constitution, not to kissing Donald Trump's ass. So what are you doing, Lindsey Graham? You're not going to, that's like a, that's like if you're on a jury and you're saying you sit in the jury box with your fingers in your ears and say, I'm not listening to any witness testimony. I'm not looking at any of the evidence. I don't care. What? How irresponsible. Just a pure dereliction of duty. And for what? Again, Lindsey Graham. Is she worried about reelection in South Carolina? Okay. Unbelievable. Absolutely despicable. You're still going to go along with this bullshit line about that. It's all about Trump was actually asking for, you know, looking into corruption in Ukraine. Come on. There was something very interesting about that. Um, if this was just one last point, if this was really about corruption, which is what you're going to hear some Republicans try to feed you because the rest of the evidence and the narrative and the facts are so damning against Trump that he abused his power and all of these things. They're going to try to say, well, yeah, he did. It was a quid pro quo, but it's because of he was uh, he was legitimately concerned about corruption in Ukraine. Oh, really? How come he never brings that up during the call? And by the way, something that is not, I don't think, getting enough attention in the news when discussing all of this and what's going on, this security aid money and military equipment that the United States Congress passed was passed in September of 2018. So this money could not be appropriated to Ukraine without Congress passing it into law and, and agreeing to it. Now, these, this, this money comes with conditions because Ukraine has been historically so corrupt in a lot of ways for decades. I mean, this is not new that they've had problems, but they're also really important because strategically where they are and they're trying to be a democracy to beat back Russia's um, aggression in that part of Europe. So we try our best to uh, support Ukraine and they're in a hot war with Russia right now as we speak. So a little timeline 
just for context. And I think this is important for people to understand. And it also knocks down this bullshit idea that Donald Trump cares about corruption in Ukraine, which we all know is BS. But in case anyone ever asks about this and tries to use that as an excuse, you have these facts. September 2018, Congress passes the money and the security aid, the military aid for Ukraine. The caveat is that they have to demonstrate, Ukraine does, that they are making progress with anti-corruption efforts. Fast forward to spring of 2019. I think it was July, um, May, May of 2019. The Defense Department has done a review at this point. So they've been investigating to make sure that the money that's been appropriated can, in fact, go to Ukraine because they've been making efforts, concerted good faith efforts to fight corruption. The Defense Department determines that, yes, Ukraine is, has, in fact, made good faith efforts to combat corruption. So we're going to sign off on releasing this aid on our end because the aid that we're talking about comes from the Pentagon and then the other part of it comes from the State Department. So it was two separate pots of money. That's why sometimes you hear 250 million, sometimes you hear 400 million, because one is from the Pentagon, the other is from the State Department. So then the Defense Department signs off on May, in May and says, yep, good to go. Then the Department of Defense announces in June that their $250 million of security aid is going to be released. That package is going to be released to Ukraine except it doesn't get released to Ukraine. A month goes by, July 18th, the White House notifies the Pentagon and says, yeah, you're not going to release that money just yet. You're not releasing that security aid just yet. Put a freeze on it. Per Trump's direct order. So the Pentagon's like, wait, what? Why? We don't, what, why is this why? They didn't know. They didn't have an explanation for it. Mick Mulvaney admitted a couple weeks ago that they did, in fact, put a freeze on it because they wanted Ukraine to look into corruption. He says that's why we held up the money. It's right there in front of you. But it wasn't the kind of corruption that we understand it to be. It was looking into Biden and this debunked conspiracy theory about the, the DNC server in Ukraine. So this is all very, very nefarious. And something else, one last thing. The Trump administration has repeatedly tried to cut programs that fight corruption in places like Ukraine. More than once, they've tried to do this. And the Washington Post wrote an article about this on October 23rd, where they outline the different efforts I'm just going to read a couple lines from it as examples. For example, the administration sought to cut a program called International Narcotics Control and Law Enforcement. Among the goals of the program, as described in the White House budget documents, is helping U.S. partners address threats to U.S. interests by building resilience and promoting reform in the justice and law enforcement sectors through support to new institutions and specialized offices such as Ukraine's National Anti-Corruption Bureau and Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office. That comes directly from the White House's own budget proposal. Now, that program directs specific sums of money to individual countries. In 2019, $30 million was directed to Ukraine specifically after Congress rejected another administration request to cut the sum to $13 million. 
That's just one example. So if anybody, anytime you hear Trump or his minions try to say that this was legitimately about corruption, concern for corruption inside Ukraine, call BS because they have made every effort not only to cut those efforts and those programs on behalf of the United States government, there is absolutely no example of a U.S. government sanctioned investigation into corruption if they were so concerned. And the Department of Defense did their due diligence, making sure things were copacetic in Ukraine before they signed off on releasing the security aid that was already passed by Congress. Those are the facts, folks. And yet here you have Republicans still trying to justify this and gaslight the American people into believing that it wasn't what we see, what people are testifying to under oath, and that you're supposed to believe Donald Trump. I do have to say I was a little surprised that not one Republican voted to move forward with the impeachment inquiry. Now, the vote was not about the impeachment itself. It was just about establishing the process rules. And I, I'm surprised I'm surprised that the Will Hurds and the Francis Roonies of the world, people who are retiring that know that what's going on is bullshit. I'm surprised that they, um, they didn't jump ship and, and do the right thing. And that just gave Trump another talking point to say, see, this is totally partisan, no Republicans, and they're all behind me. This is just a Democratic witch hunt, blah, 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 blah. We've heard it a million times before. But I think he feels the walls are closing in a bit because if you just look at his Twitter feed, his public comments more and more erratic. So you know, the more erratic his his Twitter, um, his rage tweeting becomes, you, you know it's touched a nerve. So I think he's nervous. He, he, he's, he's starting to see that things have not exactly been going his way. Um, but I don't know, polling came out this week that showed he still got a viable shot. He's still polling competitively in... swing states like Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, states that he needs to to win, states that Democrats need to get back. And Biden is still polling ahead of everybody else in beating Trump, but it's within the margin of error. And uh, Elizabeth Warren polls the worst, except I think in one place, Trump beats her, um, which we know about already. So that's why I keep telling Democrats they need to not think that they're just going to win next year because Trump is so unpopular doesn't matter. National polls don't matter. What matters are these state polls. And Liz, they nominate Elizabeth Warren. You can hand that election right back over to Donald Trump. I know my progressive listeners don't want to hear that. They are excited by Elizabeth Warren, but I'm telling you right now, people in Pennsylvania, once she is exposed for her positions, which are pretty radical, they're not going for Elizabeth Warren. They're not, and they sure as hell aren't going to vote for her in Florida. And these are states that they, that the Democrats absolutely need to win. So pay attention to the polling. It is trending though, more, um, pro impeachment. Donald Trump is even Fox news polls have, have more people. I think it's 49% are pro impeachment and removal versus 46% who say no, that's a Fox news poll. Um, Trump tried to say, oh, Fox News polls, don't listen to any of them. They're all lousy. I tried to say the Fox poll, pollster, they need to get a new one. So now apparently Fox News polls are bad because they're not, <laughs> they're not uh, uh, pro-Trump enough. So he's just dismissing all of this. It's all fake. All the polls are fake. Yeah, okay. 
I don't know about that. I think as more and more information comes out, the American people are paying attention and, you know, you'll have to make a decision if you feel as though the president's behavior warrants impeachment. If we have to decide as a country, do we want the president of the United States to have the ability to abuse his power, obstruct justice, lie, deceive, um, you know, the list goes is long of Trump's egregious behavior. Is that what we want? Is that the precedent we want to set? I say no. And I hope that more and more people say no and that Republicans grow a spine in the Senate and take a look at what they're the future that they want for this country and the and the presidency. Uh, what else is going on in that respect? Um, well, just just as just to reemphasize the point that the vote to open up the public hearings and things that the Democrats took. I think that's important because now they can make the case publicly. Why were they doing this behind closed doors before? Because this was the investigative phase. I think what's getting lost in this because Republicans are just, just running around with their hair on fire, screaming process, process. This is, you know, not fair. It's about secret and blah, blah. No, listen, 40 plus Republicans were allowed in these hearings. They were allowed to question witnesses. They were in the room. They had access because these were the Republicans who sat on the respective committees who are overseeing the depositions. So the jerks like Matt Gates and others who are not on these respective committees, they weren't allowed in the room. And for good reason, because remember the stunt they pulled, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, barging the skiff and all kinds of stuff like Democrats are trying to conduct this in a fair way way. And unlike the Nixon and Clinton impeachments, there was no investigative phase first conducted by a special counsel. That's the main difference here. Nixon, they had a special counsel, right? Two of them. One got fired in the Saturday Night Massacre and they got another one. And they were the ones that were doing the investigative phase before it went to Congress. Same thing with Clinton. You had Ken Starr, and he did all the investigating. Before that, you had uh, Fisk, I think, before that. But you had independent counsels who did this part of it. This time around, we don't have that. Now, you had it with Mueller. Mueller did the investigating for that part. But unfortunately, because the American people just, well, Democrats did a terrible job of explaining why the American people should care that Donald Trump's behavior that was outlined in the in the Mueller report was pretty egregious. It was too much. American people didn't get it. Trump was allowed to to pervert the narrative thanks to his attorney general henchman, Bill Barr, basically just flat out lying about what the Mueller report actually said. And most people bought it because they don't have time to read a 448 page report. I get it. But it wasn't a good job of presenting the seriousness of the Mueller report and the actual collusion that really did happen in volume one with the campaign and the desire to get the emails and who they were willing to work with to do it. And, and Russia's the, the extent of Russia's penetration of our election system. It was nuts last week. I hope you listened to my interview with Molly McHugh. She's an information warfare expert and she explained how just involved Russia is and, and the complexity of their attack on our election system and on our information and the way we consume it and how they manipulated those messages. It's scary shit. Uh, if you haven't listened, download last week's episode. It's 
I feel like everyone should listen to that because I just don't know if the American people really get what Russia is doing and continues to do. I don't know because a lot of that's getting lost in the day-to-day chaos of what's happening with Trump. But Russia's not our friend. And I just read um, a headline today saying that Russia is claiming that they're, they're, they're getting involved in a joint cybersecurity operation with the U.S. What? Are you kidding me? That's insane if that's really what's happening. I don't know if that's true or not. I, do you remember a couple of years ago, Trump said that they had a, that they came to some joint cybersecurity agreement with Russia? That was, I think, think 2017 or was it 2018? I think it was around Helsinki time and everyone was like, what the fuck? Like, no way. Like, what? They, they're our enemies. Their intelligence services hacked the DNC. Like what is, I don't know. So pay close attention to all of this because it's still happening despite the chaos going on with Donald Trump on a daily basis and his attempts and Republicans attempts to try to distract from what's really going on. I mean, our elections are still not secure and I'm, you know, I worry about what, what, what's going to happen with that. But with that said, Um, That leads me back to what's going on with Ukraine and the latest developments there, because now the Democrats are starting to release the full transcripts of some of the people that they've already deposed, like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, like Ambassador Taylor, like former Ambassador Yovanovitch. Um, She, what happened to her should be alarming to everyone She was the ambassador to Ukraine who was called back early because Rudy Giuliani and his frickin' frat cronies, Les Fruman and uh, and uh, Igor, well, Parnas and Fruman, I think it's Les Parnas, Igor Fruman, the guys that were arrested and now indicted for felony charges. They were trying to escape the country and and the feds nabbed them and now they're in jail. They were, they're, you know, Russian mafia tied um, and they they were Giuliani's, um, intermediaries into this whole Ukraine thing for the last year and a half. These people are bad news and they wanted Yovanovitch out because she wasn't having any of their corrupt schemes that they had going on in Ukraine. So she stood in the way and they gave money to Republicans like Pete Sessions, who was a congressman who ended up losing in 2018. Um, they, you know, wanted to put pressure to get to oust Yovanovitch and it worked. It worked. And, and yes, every president has the prerogative to replace an ambassador, but this was not in good faith. And her transcripts came out and she was, she felt threatened. She felt that her life was in danger. She got a one o'clock in the morning phone call saying, you need to get on the next plane back to the United States for your security. They were very ominous about it. And then you hear the call, the transcript call, where Trump talks about when he's talking to Zelensky, he says, oh, yeah, there's some things that are going to happen to her. I heard she's bad news, but don't worry. What the hell does that mean? So you start putting all those things together and her, her, her testimony is pretty significant. You had a State Department official who said basically he resigned because Mike Pompeo was not standing up for his diplomats. He raised concerns about it and said, I'm not going to be a part of what the State Department's doing. We got all this crap going on. Trump's withholding aid. 
Mike Pompeo's and not standing up for, for legit career ambassadors. No, nah, I'm done. I, and, he, and he resigned. And his, his testimony has been released now. So the picture's becoming much clearer. And Republicans are still throwing fits about process because they cannot argue the merits. They can't. During the, impeach, uh, the impeachment inquiry vote last week, Steve Scalise, who's the number three Republican, he's the whip, actually used the term Soviet-style impeachment to complain about what was going on. He used it more than once. And I just recoiled at hearing those terms being used on the House floor. Soviet-style? No. First of all, there is no process or any due process in, in the Soviet Union or in Russia now. But they didn't have this kind of mechanism, Soviet-style process. That doesn't even make sense. No, they murder people. They disappear people. You don't have this kind of deliberation. Like, just shut up. What are they doing using these terms? This plays right into my conversation with Molly McHugh about the information warfare and the chaos that the, that the Russians want to sow in our democracy. Plays right into their hands. Stupid Republicans. What are they doing? I just, oh, it's so frustrating. So frustrating. And now it looks like with the with these new documents that this this Ukraine conspiracy has gone back to the election since 2016. Guess who started it? Guess who planted the damn seed? Paul Manafort. Donald Trump's Russian oligarch connected, corrupt as hell, now sitting in jail, former campaign manager. He's the one, it looks like, according to these new documents, and I'm going to talk to bring in Jason Leopold in a, in a minute to talk about this. But it was Paul Manafort who st- for, first planted the seed that it was Ukraine who hacked the servers and Ukraine, not the, not, not the Russians, it was Ukraine. Well, at whose direction did he do that? Paul Manafort was beholden to a Russian oligarch named Kalimnik. And he owed Kalimnik a lot of money over the years for his work in the Ukraine. And that's partially why Paul Manafort, quote, worked for free as Donald Trump's chairman. Nobody ever works for free in this business. Well, we found out, thanks to the Mueller report, that Paul Manafort was feeding information back to Konstantin Kalimnik, who has also been identified as connected to Russian intelligence, by the way. That's also in the Mueller report. Paul Manafort was feeding him information, polling data and strategy. Why? Why were the Russians interested in that? Who the hell knows? But that's not a good look. That's not collusion. Of course it is. But whatever. So Paul Manafort, this is this Konstantin Kalimnik wanted to push the narrative that it was Ukraine who hacked the DNC and it was Ukraine who meddled in the election, not the Russians, because Kalimnik is connected to Putin, as all Russian oligarchs are. So, you know, this is really, really nefarious stuff here. But that's what that's what planted the seed in Trump's mind and Giuliani and all this since 2016. Because we have to remember, Paul Manafort worked for the corrupt Ukrainian president, Yanukovych, who ended up getting ousted during the 2014 
uh, uprising in Ukraine and he had to flee to Russia. And it was the, the ledger, the black book ledger that came, that, that was discovered that showed Paul Manafort was getting millions of dollars in off the books payments from Yanukovych's government. That's what came to light in 2016 and what forced Paul Manafort out of the chairman of the uh, Trump campaign job because it became clear that he was under investigation for that. So he couldn't be anywhere near the campaign anymore. That's when Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway came in and took over for Manafort. But you'll find out in my conversation that Manafort didn't exactly go away. Um, we did not know that before. So I think that's a good a good place to to bring in Jason Leopold, senior investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News, to talk about these new documents that he uncovered and uh, how they relate to the current impeachment inquiry right now. Next up, Jason Leopold. So this week, I'm really pleased to have with me one of the uh, intrepid reporters who's been on the case with Trump and and the Mueller report and Russia and all of the nonsense that's been going on there. Um, and recently, thankfully, thank you, thank you, Lord, for FOIA requests. Uh, there have been in, there's been information uncovered that was the primary source documents for the Mueller investigation. And Jason Leopold, who is a BuzzFeed senior investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News, has been able to obtain some of these primary source documents that went into the crafting of the Mueller report. So, Jason Leopold, thank you for joining me on Honestly Tara, Honestly Speaking with Tara. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Tara. Jason, you really have been doing yeoman's work with this. Um, and people joke and they call you either the patron saint of FOIA or a FOIA terrorist, as you have on your Twitter uh, profile. Yes. What makes you the FOIA terrorist? And explain to people what exactly is FOIA for those of us who are not that, that don't live inside the Beltway. Sure, sure. So uh, I'll start with uh, describing what FOIA is first. So the FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, in the U.S., we have this uh, law that allows anyone uh, in the U.S. and frankly, anyone uh, around the world who can petition the government uh, to see the records that it that it stores and maintains. And this is a half century old law that uh, empowers the citizens and journalists to write requests to the government, to any government agency for uh, a wide range of records. And you can ask for anything. You can ask for emails. You can ask for memos. You can ask for talking points. uh, You can ask for letters. uh, And the government then, uh, any government agency would have to process that request. And then they would have to uh, essentially, you know, say you can have this or you can have this. Uh, what's also great about it is that um, if you're looking for classified material, the so let's say from like the CIA or the NSA, mm-hmm. they will make a decision on whether or not to declassify that. Um, so you can ask for anything. The government doesn't have to give it to you, but it's an incredibly powerful tool uh, that uh, that allows you to kind of take a look behind the curtain uh, to see what the government is doing in your name. And uh, the, the one 
sort of uh, kind of drawback, if you will, to this is that when Congress passed the Freedom of Information Act, they exempted themselves from it. So you cannot, <laughs> you cannot, you cannot FOIA, you cannot file a FOIA request and ask for congressional emails, for example. Uh, you can sort of try to work out around that and go to a government agency and say any emails you may have received from right. Devin. Yes. Um, you can also, the White House is also exempt uh, from the Freedom of Information Act. You can still, they'll still accept it, but uh, they're exempt. But it's a. Um, claim executive privilege for the White House? Yes, and it, it sort of allows them to kind of conduct business uh, uh, essentially, partially in secret, but also candidly ha- you know, have these candid discussions and uh, conduct business without uh, prying eyes, if you will. Um, but again, ways around that. You know, if you go to any executive branch agency, uh, you can you can certainly say that you know, any emails they may have received from or, or documents they may have received from, you know, from the White House. So there's many ways to sort of work around it. But it's a very, very, very powerful tool. And, uh, and it does allow citizens to, uh, to, to really see what, uh, you know, what, what the government's up to. And, and that's how I used it uh, for, for what you and I are, are discussing now, which is, which is related to Robert Mueller's 44, uh, excuse me, 448 page report that was released in April. Which leads us into this next discussion, because the government is not happy with most FOIA request, requests. I know not even just for what you were doing, where they really weren't happy about it, but they find it to be cumbersome and annoying. And they have FOIA offices where this is all people do is respond to FOIA requests because the government is inundated with them. But it also, as you said, is an amazing tool because it uncovers what's going on. It kind of, you know, you can peek behind the curtain and see what your government is doing, how they're spending their your money, your tax dollars. And in this case, the Bob Mueller two-year investigation, which was really thorough and it had a lot of tentacles. And those of us who follow this closely were wondering, well, how did he come to some of these conclusions? What were they reading? And you were able, along with CNN, my, my, um, my bosses over there at CNN joined this lawsuit that you, that Buzzfeed news filed and you guys were able to get this information. And it's my understanding that this is only a portion of it, that the that the ruling was that the DOJ cannot stonewall on this and they have to release a certain amount of documents per month. Correct. That is right. Yeah. And it's a, what, what you saw this weekend uh, was just a sliver of the. Uh, number of records that they have in the specific category that we requested. And, uh, you know, I use the Freedom of Information Act a lot. And uh, in fact, if uh, just to answer your previous question, you know, I, in, in my Twitter handle, you know, I, in my bio, I have FOIA terrorist. It's in quotes. <laughs> the reason that's there is because that's how government age, uh, a government agency had referred to me years back uh, when I was filing a number of requests, they, they, they I found out through a FOIA uh, and <laughs> through, through other, ironically, and through uh, some people I was speaking with at this agency, that because I was filing so many of these requests, that they um, they they said I was terrorizing 
you know, the agency. I mean, there's been an, a, a time when the NSA went to court that, uh, and said that I was weaponizing the FOIA, that I was hired here at BuzzFeed News just to, <laughs> you know, deluge the government with all these uh, uh bombard the government with all these uh, FOIA requests. There was a time when the DOJ said I was a member of a, quote, FOIA posse. And uh, in fact, said that, you know, another DOJ attorney said that that should be the name of my band if I ever started. Um, but <laughs> that's sort of the, You should get t-shirts. I should, yes, yeah. I'm telling you, you could make yeah. any merchandising FOIA terrorist or FOIA Brand- posse. That's awesome. <laughs> Branding that. Um, so, you know, that's sort of like the backstory on it. But the reason that, you know, we utilizing this is that uh, this, this tool is because everything is conducted in secret for the most part. It's very, very difficult sure. to, to obtain information. And in this day and age where... You know where we are uh, dealing with a, um, uh, a, a an attack on the media, an attack on the media's credibility. And if you're writing a story uh, and you're quoting uh, someone and it's it's anonymous, it's really hard for the public to you know know whether or not they should believe in the veracity of the story that they're writing. Mm-hmm. So I use this this tool to um, to pry loose records in an effort to one, win, further win the trust of the public and to really kind of show the public as well. Like, look, this is the government's own documents. This is what they say. Right. And that that was the case this weekend. Well, it's especially uh, important now because we have a president and an administration that is utterly dishonest at every turn. And this way you have the proof in their own documents, their own writings, and the documents that came out this weekend, which we're about to talk about, are made up yeah. mostly of the FBI 302s, which are um, basically the forms that FBI agents use when they interview correct. witnesses, correct? And it's sworn. Yeah. Those are sworn statements. Yes. In fact, uh, yes. It's, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a crime. It's a federal crime to, to lie to you know the FBI and and pretty much you know any federal investi- investigative uh, uh, person or, or agency. Um, and 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 just to, if I can just go back to what you yeah. uh, what you were noting earlier. So when we were when when we filed uh, the request and then ultimately sued for these documents, we I, I wrote these requests to essentially ask for everything that Mueller. Uh, Mueller's probe amassed during the two-year investigation. And then in breaking these requests up into categories, um, I asked also for these, what's known as 302 reports, as as you just noted, which is the form that the FBI uses. You know, yes, CNN then joined our lawsuit and together um, a a judge uh, ordered the government to begin releasing these records to us at... um, at about 500 pages per month, which is a pretty small volume of records, particularly when the government is saying that there may be as many as 46,000 pages oh just just on the FBI 302s. So, you know, you start doing the math and that, that adds up to eight years <laughs> that we may be getting these records. Um, we're hoping that the judge later this month, when we have a another hearing, will you know, force the government to increase the page count. Um, but um, who made the decision on the page count? Was it the judge or was it the government trying to say like there was some undue burden they couldn't release anymore? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. It was the government. It was the government that was uh, the government attorney representing the FBI saying, you know, they're backlogged. There's uh, uh, there, there, there's voluminous requests and lawsuits 
that they have to contend with. And the judge actually didn't show too much sympathy to the government attorney when that argument was made in a hearing last month. And, right. and the judge in our case, yeah, the judge in our case said, hey, look, you know, um, Trump came into office as a, quote, disruptor, unquote, and uh, they should have been prepared for this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he that he is asking the government to do at the next hearing is to provide details about whether or not the government has requested additional funding from Congress to um, to, uh, to to deal with the voluminous requests and lawsuits that they're that they're dealing with. And, oh, and he, yeah, he said that, look, you know, the, it, it, this should not fall um, on the backs of citizens to have to wait years to see what the government is up to. Uh, so he, he, he put the government uh, attorney into, uh, you know, but put him in a corner, so to speak, and, 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 and is forcing them to kind of uh, um, respond to to how they are, how they plan to deal with this. Well, the and bottom line it, there is that yeah. the judge wasn't buying the bullshit argument that the government doesn't have the resources or time to do this as a stalling tactic. So he was like, okay, exactly. well, then are you prepared to ask Congress for more money to hire more people? Because that's exactly right. Not buying it. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, that's exactly what he said. I mean, that that's that is uh, a perfect summary yeah. of uh, of what the response was to that argument. So let's talk about what has everyone so up in arms about the what you discovered. Yes. Um, what were the biggest takeaways? Because not everyone will have the time to read them. I've I haven't read all sure. of them. I've been reading through some because obviously I follow this very closely, and yeah. I'm fascinated by filling in the pieces to some of the aspects of the Mueller report, which I also read. Um, so top three biggest takeaways from this latest trove of, of information. Sure. So the 302s that were included in this in this cache of records uh, were Steve Bannon, uh, uh, former deputy campaign manager Rick Gates, and a heavily redacted uh, uh, 302s of Michael Cohen, Trump's former fixer and a lawyer who is now in jail. Partially because the, of this, right? Because he lied. Partially because him. of this, yes, exactly. And, and, you know, we reported extensively on, on uh, Michael Cohen's lies to Congress and uh, uh, what these 302s do. It goes further. You know, it shows that Michael Cohen was telling you know, the FBI when he was interviewed, he entered into a um, uh, an agreement where he would provide the government uh, would provide the government would provide Mueller's probe um, with, with evidence. Uh, un it's unknown exactly what he was providing them with, but uh, it shouldn't be mixed up with a cooperation agreement. But that's more or less kind of what it is. But he was providing them with some information. And uh, what he told at the FBI, particularly as it relates to this Trump Tower Moscow deal, which was the basis for his uh, part of his uh, guilty plea for lying to Congress, is that it wasn't his idea, is that there was a script and the script uh, uh, involved dis discussions with Trump uh, and uh, his uh, attorney at the time, Jay Sekulow, and uh, essentially keeping to that script that they couldn't really reveal or that Michael Cohen couldn't reveal that Trump was um, had any business dealings with Russia. Uh, the, so just to just to stop you to remind people why this is significant during the election, 
Trump was asked if he had any business ties in Russia or any business in Russia, and he vehemently denied this. And, exactly. But at the time, we didn't know whether he did or didn't. There were suspicions that he did, and it was no secret that he was interested in building a Trump Tower in Moscow. But no one really – we didn't really have the proof that this was going on. Fast forward uh, a year or so later after Trump has already won and now the, the, you have the Steele dossier and all these other things and stuff coming out about Russia – Michael Cohen now is being called to testify the first time with Congress, and he was basically told to, to lie about when these business deals with Russia ended, right? Correct. That's correct. And it yes. was Kelly and Conway and Hope Hicks who came up with this script. Uh, yeah, they were part of the sort of you know, the, the team, if you will, yeah. that was included there. And, um, you know, what Michael Cohen even reveals, at least is what he's, again, what he's telling the FBI is that these discussions about Trump Tower Moscow um, actually took place in uh, very early 2016. So not even at the height of the election. I think uh, if I, I know at least one month, um, I believe it was uh, actually March and April is what the 302 says, is that where they were discussing this, where Trump came, went to uh, Michael Cohen and said, what's going on with Russia? Right. And that, in context of that was the, um, you know, the Trump Tower Moscow deal. And then and later that, on found out that, there, that they had a letter of intent, which at the time the American people did not know. We were unaware of that. Exactly. I think that would have been material information for voters, whether the president of the United States was – you know, doing a business deal in Russia while he was asking Russia to find Hillary Clinton's emails. <laughs> exactly. And then and then, you know, to segue into Steve Bannon, um, that uh, point that you just made about that letter of intent, Steve Bannon's asked about it. And he said that, uh, you know, he had discussions with Trump uh, about Russia and about some business deals. And even Trump even told him that there, there's nothing there. But then he found out about this letter of intent. And uh, he told the FBI that he thought it was a, a big deal and a big reveal. That's how he mm -hmm. characterized it, uh, that it was it was a, a very big deal. And uh, in Steve Bannon's discussions with the FBI, I mean, what's fascinating there is that he goes into this great detail about, you know, what was taking place during the last few months of the campaign, how Trump was just uh, obsessed with Hillary Clinton's emails, with finding Hillary Clinton's emails, with uh, this Uranium One um, scandal or conspiracy theory, however, you know, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, that he thought that the, you know, if they found Hillary Clinton's missing emails, it would reveal details about the Clinton Foundation and Uranium One about payments being made um, uh, re revolving around this by, you know, by the Clintons. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition to that, he was discussing how uh, uh, even after Paul Manafort was fired, that uh, he was still re it was, was uh, remained on the campaign as a consultant of sorts. That's interesting, and, by the way. That was something that I don't think many people knew before this. This no, it wasn't. It, it it wasn't even included in the, you know, in the report. In, in the Mueller report. Yeah. So what? And this is this is what's great about this is that. You know, the 302s are not just the summaries of the interviews, but they also include um, supplemental materials such as emails and letters, et cetera. And on this particular point, uh, uh, Paul Manafort had emailed Jared Kushner three days before the election and said he's feeling really good about the prospects on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And he just gave a briefing to – he just briefed 
uh, at that time, um, uh, uh, Rick Gates, and of all people, Sean Hannity, uh, about Tuesday. And Sean Hannity makes an appearance a couple of times in these 302s. Yes. Let's uh, talk about Sean Hannity really quick. And then I want to go back to Manafort because that is, yes. um, I think, relevant to the Ukraine impeachment issue we're dealing with now. Uh, but yeah, Sean Hannity, I got to tell you, he is, his fingerprints are all over everything. I mean, Sean Hannity really is like the de facto chief of staff, senior advisor to this president in a way that we have never seen before. You have a cable news guy who is right. Donald Trump's hatchet guy on, on news, highest rated cable news to program. So his reach is very far. And here he is um, all up in it, not only with this situation, but also Sean Hannity's name came up during Michael Cohen's yes, as one of his potential clients. I mean, I and it's also in his in Michael Cohen's 302 as well, where, yeah. where Sean Hannity's name uh, comes up in, in, in the context of Trump. Uh, Putin, whether or not to, you know, uh, to, you know, what to discuss revolving around Russia. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's it's amazing how, because, how in, you know, not interviewed by the FBI. You know, it's unclear if he if 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 he was. I mean, I, I, I think that basically his his mention here. Um, I mean, I, there, well, first, let me just say there's 500 witnesses or 500 individuals that were interviewed. Right. Uh, by the FBI. I don't know 500, you know, the names of the 500 people, you know, that were interviewed. So it's um, it, it, it's still unknown. But I think the point about Sean Hannity is that, you know, in many ways, um, because of how closely he is connected to the, um, you know, to, to Trump before he was elected and then you know after the after his inauguration there's a quite a bit of dishonesty going on you know when when he is speaking mm. when he is uh, when he's on air he's not telling his listeners like hey look you know i've got a uh, a line in directly to paul manafort or, or or the white house he's he's presenting himself and and the information he's providing as you know coming from his sources but as these documents reveal you know he he was he, he had a real you know hand in 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 shaping the message and helping to shape a narrative and you, you know so when paul manafort is 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 emailing jared kushner and saying hey i briefed um Paul Manafort about what's going to happen Tuesday. Uh, excuse me, I briefed uh, Sean Hannity about what's happening Tuesday. I mean, it's just it's kind of stunning to see that, you know, that, because it, it yes. lets you know that that he he is not an outsider. He he's a real insider, and not an insider is the way that we sometimes refer to journalists as as people with access. I mean, this this is a person who is clearly you know involved in decision-making and right. policy and, right. and, and, and that. And it's funny with the Paul Manafort, you know, with that particular email, Jared Kushner, uh, and again, three days before the election, and you get the sense here, right? The tone, what they're thinking is that even three days before the election, they didn't think that they were going to win, right. you know, because as Jared Kushner forwards this email to Steve Bannon and says, what do you think? And, um, you know, Steve Bannon, maybe he felt that that at the time that you know Trump would win, but his response is is uh, we need to avoid Manafort like the plague, you know, um, and uh, we cannot let anyone know that he's speaking to us, advising us. And what their fear was is that if there is a victory, they felt that it would be blamed on Russia and WikiLeaks because surprise, of the surprise. yeah because of the you know 
part of the association with, you know, the Russia uh, Manafort connection, Manafort Ukraine uh, connection. And so um, that was the response there. And that was just a kind of a, you know, a, a, a stunning to be able to see all of this memorialized mm-hmm. um, in a 302. And, and as I noted, you know, that, you know, w- w- provided quite a bit of information that dates back to even 2015 uh, when they were uh, – the campaign was looking to – find Hillary Clinton's missing emails and they had tapped a, uh, you know, they were looking to tap their own intelligence sources, oh, you know, to help. Barbara, Barbara Ledeen comes in. Yes. Right. Exactly. And they, you know, provided with a very lengthy proposal, um, about, uh, uh, launching an operation, you know, to find these emails. So, also, you know, then we wasn't go to, there a reference uh, to Michael Flynn and Flynn there using was, his yes. intelligence connections Flynn. to try to find those emails as well in Russia? Yes, yes. And you know, I, 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 the Mueller report certainly mentions that. Mm-hmm. And but again, you get to you get to see this narrative that was in the Mueller report fleshed out. Right. What they were more than two sentences, you know. So you get to see the proposal, you get to see what Flynn, you know, was discussing, but you see the obsession within a campaign about these emails, about how they felt that the leak um, and the hack that took place of the DNC, uh, that it would, how it was benefiting the campaign. I mean, in August of 2016, Steve Bannon is sending, um, or Steve Bannon told the FBI that in August of 2016, Jared Kushner was vacationing off the coast of Croatia with a Russian billionaire and the Russian billionaire's girlfriend. And he needed Jared Kushner to come back to the United States to fire Paul Manafort. The campaign was running out of money and they had 85 days left. And you, you, first of all, that detail and that color is just amazing. But you, you, you get the sense of like they, these folks were, were trying to hold on to anything that they could, you know, to to claim a victory. And they saw the, you know, the DNC hack, uh, the role of WikiLeaks, um, as something that would benefit them. In fact, you know, one of the other fascinating emails that was included in this cache is an email that that Donald Trump Jr. had sent to. Uh, I believe Bannon, but as well as other uh, individuals, saying that he just received a DM, a weird DM from WikiLeaks that came with a password. Mm-hmm. And uh, he tried it out to see a face, and it seems to be the real person. And he goes on clearly to describe what is, um, you know, what, what our own intelligence services ultimately discovered was. Yeah, and, and and the and the hacked emails, right? Uh, so, Which, so just for people so that they understand that is uh, basically an arm of the of the GRU, which is a Russian intelligence agency, and they ended up using WikiLeaks as the vehicle to release these hacked things. So, WikiLeaks was considered a co-conspirator in what the Russian hacks and what was going on, which is why the idea of Russian collusion. And the obsession with the Trump campaign and these emails, how anyone can say that they, there was no collusion is beyond me. 
with all of this. I mean, even though collusion's not a legal term, there was a right, lot of colludy right. shit going on here. That is yeah, obvious. No, it's obvious. It's, uh, it's amazing. And then we get to Rick Gates where, you know, again, he provides even more detail about you know <clears throat> excuse me about the emails and and then what's at the what what's at the center right, right now of this impeachment inquiry right is this is this phone call and this quid pro quo that um, that took place when Trump called uh, the president of Ukraine and one of the things you know that was being discussed was the fact that uh, um, that you know Trump mentioned that you know Ukraine was responsible for hacking the DNC. Right, the crowd and, strike part of that call in the in the summary. Exactly, which is kind of getting second fiddle because the yes. the Biden stuff is a little bit more salacious and easier for the public to understand. Most people, unless you follow this the way we do, they have right. no idea about CrowdStrike and the server and all that. It starts to – your head starts to explode. But this is where the the Manafort-Ukraine conspiracy theory comes into play now in, in what we've uncovered, what you guys have uncovered. Um, because Manafort was obsessed yes. with this because Paul Manafort's partially in jail now because of his business dealings with corrupt leaders in Ukraine and taking money from them and that whole thing. Right. And so it's right. his purpose to plant this seed that Ukraine was involved and not Russia because Paul Manafort's beholden to Russian freaking oligarchs. Right. That's right. And, you know, and that that is a that was a big, big revelation this weekend was the fact that Paul Manafort saying that Ukraine was behind and the hack of the uh, of the DNC that it wasn't Russia um, was was the was the something that <clears throat> everyone sort of you know zeroed in on, uh, particularly others in the media when they were writing stories about these documents because it is at the center of this impeachment inquiry, right? And and so, so now you we can know where see. Trump got the seed planted. He obviously exactly. trusted Manafort to a certain degree, <laughs> thought he was a smart guy until he was disposable because he became toxic because it was revealed that he was um, taking these uh, these these payments from Ukraine. Um, so that's that's why they fired him. But then now we know that obviously Giuliani now being the being the henchman, they all got this idea from Manafort in the freaking first place back in 2016, which is pretty unbelievable because i'm sure everyone's it, wondering like, where the hell yes. why is trump obsessed with this it is, well, it is. Know why it is unbelievable and, and again you know where this sort of gets people feeling you know the reaction to it that um and, you know we can say it that they felt that you know Mueller failed or they have questions about the integrity of his investigation is that that wasn't included in the report right. you know and so and and it's unclear why i mean i don't know Obviously, you know why certain things were included and why some things weren't. But what my goal was, right after this report came out, and and it's not unique to this um, to this report. I, I did the same thing when the Senate Intelligence Committee released this executive summary of the CIA's torture program. But when Mueller's report was released, you know you got to see all these footnotes yeah, that we we were that he was uh, <clears throat> citing um, that were were essentially. You know, footnoting uh, uh, the 302s and, and other evidence that that they collected, and yet we only have a 448-page report. That's a lot for some people. Part of this sort of you know day and age that we live yeah. in, yeah. Uh, where things are just moving so fast. But what I felt was these documents could actually provide us with a another narrative and a narrative that we can further flesh out to find 
uh, to, to, to come to our own conclusions about what happened. In addition to that, there's a criminal inquiry that uh, uh, that was uh, that this moved into right now. That now Bill Barr has um, authorized, apparently, at least according to the New York Times and others who have reported it, a criminal investigation into the genesis of the Russia probe. Which is so insane. I feel. Yeah, I mean, it, it's unclear why, but these documents. Oh, I know why. We all know why. I mean, we can. You, you're, you're a journalist, so you have to be a little more objective. I don't have to be. It's clearly political retribution because Trump it does seem does not, Yeah, Trump does not want to accept what our intelligence agencies have found unequivocally that Russia was involved in the hacking of the DNC. They tried to meddle in our elections. And their fingerprints are all over this. And the Mueller report backs that up. And the the, the the indictments and everything else, there is so much information and proof that it was Russia. But Trump doesn't want that. This is just Bill Barr being sent out there on – this is literally a witch hunt – to try to undermine the narrative because there's so much damning information against Russia and Trump's involvement in the campaign that they have to do this. This is the only thing they have to try to cast some doubt on what the entire world knows to be true. Right. Yes. And and I mean, I, I think that's a certainly uh, a conclusion that that people can come to at this point, seeing what we've seen. I mean, but I do think that these documents- the attorney general to do what Bill Barr is doing. Unprecedented. Yeah, I've never I, I don't think that's uh, something that, you know, that that I've seen before, and I and I do think that these documents, and again, this is just a sliver. This was just right. the first release. <laughs> are, are, it could help to sort of undercut that and to further, you know, um, legitimize, if you will, that that the investigation that was launched in 2016 was um, was certainly legitimate. Sure. I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it it it, uh, it allows us to. You know, further form our own opinions by just seeing what <clears throat> what these witnesses said in their own words. Right? Again, the Mueller report um, is powerful, but it is also Mueller's narrative. And Trump spent two years just trying to discredit Mueller mm-hmm. and every single person who worked on that uh, investigation. Um, and and now that we get to see sort of this raw primary source source material, it. Um, it, it, it takes on a different meaning, you know, and, sure. and it's, it, it allows us to sort of reach conclusions that um, or ask questions even that that um, may not have been that we've been able to do previously because this is what we were told. So Did um, you ever find out who that Russian oligarch was, um, the, I mean, the billionaire that Kushner was vacationing with? You know, there, there, um, there is some speculation about about who it is, and it may have been the individual who um, bought Trump's house in Palm Beach. Oh, uh, Rebolov uh, or whatever, right? Yes, uh, Dmitry Rebolov. Um, but it, it's it's actually, I know that. <laughs> I, yeah, you're definitely uh, <laughs> uh, uh, paying close attention, yeah. clearly. Uh, but uh, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't mention it. I mean, there's been some reporting about this, this actual, you know, this vacation that, that took place. Yeah. But again, seeing this memorialized in an FBI 302 and that, and that, um, and that Steve Bannon seems to have this firsthand knowledge is 
fascinating. Well, it's also and, fascinating. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, it's also fascinating that to, to, to look into Steve Bannon's thought process and the dynamics oh, yeah. in the campaign, yeah. it's clear, and we already kind of knew this, that Steve Bannon uh, was not a fan of Jared Kushner's. They, oh, that's was, a, you know, there yeah. was constant tension there. They did not like each other. And um, my friend and colleague now at CNN, Vicki Ward, she wrote a whole right. book called Kushner Inc. And she talked about that. Great book. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, I had her on. She was a guest a couple weeks ago. So, so if people who haven't listened to that episode, go back and download it. It's really good. Uh, you want to talk about corruption? Just look at Jared Kushner and what he's doing. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but she, but she it's really also amazing. outlines that too. Yeah, and it's amazing because, you know, just on that point is that the um, uh, the the Steve Bannon 302 and the supplemental material that was uh, attached to it includes an email. And it's an email that Steve Bannon receives um, just I think it was a few weeks or maybe a month before he was fired. And it's an email that he receives from so 2017. Uh, yeah. So it's a, in 2017, he gets this email from uh, someone who worked at Breitbart. I don't know if it's a reporter. I assume it was a reporter. But it included a link to a a story, um, a critical story about Jared Kushner and a Russian, olig- Russian oligarch. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bannon responds, um, you know, hands off for now. Uh, but ultimately, the, the what they go back and forth in this email thread, and, and your listeners can can check it out. But it's 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 uh, it's clear that Bannon is pretty much trying to take down Kushner, right? Right, and he's like, hold off for now, and then they go into this discussion about again. Uh, Kushner vacationing off the uh, coast of Croatia. In fact, uh, Bannon uses scare quotes when he says vacation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, they're both discussing how to try to prove this and to prove, you know, what uh, what Kushner was doing. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, how it would negatively impact and affect Kushner. So um, that's amazing to get to see, you know, Bannon's thought process in his own words, right? And, and seeing, you know, kind of kind of being a fly on the wall as he's trying to figure out maybe how he can take down Jared Kushner. Well, Steve Bannon, however you feel about him, uh, he's awfully talkative and very cooperative, not only in this instance with the FBI, but even in the writing of some of the books that have chronicled what's been going, what happened in the in the Trump White House in those early days. He's a uh, He's an interesting character to watch. I I, I find Steve Bannon to be a, an evil genius in certain ways. And um, I wonder if he's trying to weasel his way back into helping Trump with the, navigate the impeachment stuff, whether the revelations on what he was doing, if that's going to further ice him out again. Right, right. Because it doesn't. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Too good. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But yeah. uh, uh you know, I agree. But, you know, ultimately, sort of in a nutshell, the 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 pages that were released, you know, over the weekend, despite the heavy redactions, which, you know, will continue to challenge, um, really tell a, a, a more complete story. And and I do think help shift the narrative quite a bit from, you know, what the Mueller report either left out or, you know, certain conclusions they did not reach 
And, um, you know, it's, it's hugely important. It's, this is a historical investigation. And I think that these documents have historical value in addition to just being newsworthy. And so it, uh, like I said, you know, if you're uh, someone who's really, you know, just curious about it, or maybe you doubted, you know, part of the Mueller report, um, or you just didn't read it, reading this allows you to be that kind of fly on the wall while yes. the sitting with these folks yep. and discussing it. And we, people have to remember that these are not just like this, this isn't, isn't a, an interview with a reporter or just people, right. you know, shooting the shit at a bar. This is with the FBI, which you are under oath. And even if they didn't swear you in, you're still legally obligated to tell the truth because if you find inconsistencies and you don't tell the truth, even in a 302 interview, you could go to jail, which is what Michael Flynn is facing right now. Um, yeah, Cohen. In fact, you know, one of these 302s is when, you know, the, the beginning when, when Cohen first spoke to the FBI, where he was actually lying. So, right. You know, so you can you can sort of see that um, as well. But so you have Manafort, uh, you have Cohen, you have Gates, all of which are were criminally indicted. Some are already in jail. I believe Rick right. Gates has he been sentenced yet? He has not. Right, uh, so my understanding, I think sentencing. it's actually in a weeks, maybe after the Stone, the Roger Stone trial, right. which begins tomorrow. Which is going to be, that, that's going to be very fascinating because Roger Stone and the WikiLeaks stuff is is another piece to this whole puzzle. It's just, there's just so much going on. Um, yes. One last thing, because I thank you for being so generous with your time. I know we went over sure. time, but there's just so much, it's just, we could talk about this all day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Something else I thought, thought that was interesting that I think is relevant for people to know is that Eric Prince the formerly yes. Blackwater, right. uh, Eric Prince shows up in these documents where a he lot. actually, yes, and he actually suggests that Trump back in 2016 during the election, that Trump meet with a Ukrainian official. And that Ukrainian yes. official was a corrupt one who ended up getting arrested recently, right? Just just last month. Yes, that's right. The former uh, uh, national, uh, top national security official, defense official in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, uh, Eric Prince is, uh, uh, forgive me, I, I forgot who he sent this email to. It, it may have actually been Steve Bannon. Mr. Bannon. But, uh, yeah, and he is, you know, trying to trying to get Trump to meet with this individual to sort of get a, a lay of the land of what's, you know, of, of uh, uh, politics between Ukraine and Russia and, and, and other issues. And uh, the, the person that he mentions, you know, I was checking out to see who who this person is. And it, it turns out this this was someone who was arrested last month for abuse of power, uh, financial irregularities. And so, um, you know, you wonder who these people are sort of, you know, Mixing it up with. Right. Um, it just furthers – I bring that up because it just furthers the hilarity of Trump claiming that – or and his people claiming that his interest in the in the July 25th phone call was about rooting out corruption. Get right. the hell out of here. Yeah. No, know? that's a really important point to make. I think that that is um, – you know, a, a critical point that, you know, what you see happening, you know, just from these documents, right, uh, with regard to corruption. And then you kind of hold that up against what, you know, Trump is claiming that this phone call is about. It just, it, it's just a, it's just a contradiction, you know, and. Strange credulity. Everybody knows that he's full of yeah. shit when they're, when they're trying to push this narrative because there's so much right. information to the contrary. Oh, you really, you want to talk about corruption? Then why weren't you pushing to make sure Ukraine was cooperating with Mueller? Or how come you're not getting to the bottom of what was really going on with Paul Manafort and the millions of dollars he took from the corrupt Ukrainian 
Ukrainian government. Like, no, his focus is on Joe Biden, his political rival, and some stupid conspiracy theory that's been debunked 10 times over concerning right. CrowdStrike and the DNC server. It's just, I just hope that the media and, and people like y- yourself, you know, these doing yeoman's work to bring the truth and facts first to light here, that that that, that narrative is simplified to, to destroy what Trump is trying to BS the American people by way of his intermediaries like Sean Hannity, Fox News, and talk radio. Yeah. Yeah. They're, just, yeah. they're just lying. Yeah. It, it, I, well, I, I certainly appreciate that. And I, and I, you know, recognize that there's so much information that, you know, there are individuals out there that, you know, are that people, the public, just they don't know what to believe. Right. But it's my hope that, you know, again, getting these records and other records that it will just further help inform people and, and sort of set the record straight to some extent. Um, but ultimately, that's that's the goal. It's just to arm people with information and inform them and to do it using the government's own documents, which I just think is incredible. Sure. And because the government, it, you know, the, these documents, even though Trump now and I see because they, they recognize that uh, that these documents are damning. They're now trying to say discredit 302s and claiming that that, that these were manipulated and and exactly this is just nuts. This is something out of a you know a, a spy thriller you know fantasy and it's not reality. But they're still going to try and and lie to the American people so that they never know what's true. But Jason Leopold, thank you so much for your work. Keep up the great work on this. I know this is um, uh, somewhat vindicating for you. And uh, yes. You know, I think and, it is <laughs> career and what you've done and, and reports that you've, you know, you've made it, and the people questioned the veracity of them. And now, you know, you, you have the, the, the proof to back it up even further. So right. good for you on that. And thank um, you. Tara. And uh, also to your, to your partner in crime over there and the, your fellow FOIA terrorist, Anthony Cormier <laughs> yes. and the whole yes. Buzzfeed news team. How can people find you and follow this? Where's the best place to, to direct folks if they want to look at the material themselves? Yeah, um, they can certainly you know follow me on on Twitter at Jason Leopold, um, and I you know post links and and uh, screenshots of this. But uh, we have a nice setup on our, our BuzzFeed News homepage, BuzzFeedNews.com, where it's just called the Mueller memos, and you can find it right there. Fantastic, and I will also post a link on the Honestly Speaking uh, Twitter page and my Twitter page as well. Jason, thank you so much. I I have a feeling we'll be talking again. (laughs) I think so. Thank you, Tara. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Again, big thank you to Jason Leopold of BuzzFeed News uh, for his intrepid work on getting these documents. And there's more to come with that. This, This story is not over. So uh, my good feel-good story of the week, I started off the podcast talking about uh, Halloween, and I don't know if some of you guys saw this, but I, I saw it, this story about this boy who went to a trick-or-treat, and he goes to the house, and they weren't home, so they put out, this house put out a bowl with candy in it so that kids could take it at their leisure. Well, when this kid showed up, there was no more candy in the bowl. So it was all caught on one of those ring doorbell video cameras. So you could see and hear what was going on. And, um, 
So this eight-year-old boy, his name is Jackson Champagne. This happened in in Maryland. Um, so he comes upon the 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 bowl and he goes, "Oh, there's no more candy left." So he decides to go into his own candy bag and put in two handfuls of can of his own candy into the bowl so other kids after him can get candy. How sweet is that? You know, things like these gestures of 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 kindness restore my faith in humanity because we certainly need it with what's been going on in the world, especially in this country. So I just thought that was really cute. And so when the the homeowner saw the video of this, they were able to track down this kid. And now like the family's going to get together and they wanted to give him, I think they want to give him a, um, a gift card so that he can, um, just like as a thank you for him just being a good kid. And I just thought that was really what a sweet moment, you know? Um, very selfless for, for an eight-year-old. So good for, good for Jackson. His parents raised him right. <laughs> um, one other thing, one other last thing before I close out the podcast, a couple folks have reached out to me on social media asking me how they can help with the California fires. You know, our, our fellow countrymen out in California, it's been another really awful wildfire season for them. And I just want to say, tell everybody to pray for the firefighters out there and for the homeowners and the people losing their properties. It's just been completely out of control again. And last year when this happened, I gave out some information on where people could help uh, with the wildfires there. And some folks have asked me if I could do that again. So I'm going to. And I'm proud to say that CNN actually has a website, a portion of their website set up to people for people to go and they can look at the different charities and ways to help. So that web address is cnn.com slash specials slash impact your world. So if you go to the CNN website, cnn.com slash specials slash impact your world, there's a list there of um, ways it says how, how you can help California's wildfire victims and they have a listing of a bunch of different, um, different charities. Uh, I'll list a couple here. Uh, the United way of wine country set up the Kincaid fire emergency relief and recovery fund, um, donations to the community foundation of Sonoma County's resilience fund. That's another one. I am not a big fan of the red cross. Um, I feel like their money goes way too much to overhead and things and not direct services. So I'm not going to give out the Red Cross information. That's just me. I prefer local organizations that the money goes more directly to helping people, not to ad campaigns and paying executive salaries. So that's just me. There's another one. Um, Airbnb, by the way, is offering free housing for the Kincaid Fire evacuees through this week. Um, they have something called open homes program that assists victims of disasters. So that's a nice gesture by Airbnb. So anyway, so if you want to go to CNN.com, they have uh, a listing of places that are helping out wildfire victims as well. So on that note, that's it for this week's edition of honestly speaking next week, I will be traveling to Montgomery, Alabama to my friend, Stephen Reed's inauguration. He won a historic inauguration as the first black mayor of Montgomery. So I will be there, but I should have an episode out. I believe I'll have an episode out on, on time. Um, 
and uh, it's also Veterans Day next week too. So definitely have to do something special for our for our veterans and honoring Veterans Day. But you can still follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer or at honestly underscore Tara on Twitter, on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. I will post a couple things to the Twitter page, things that I discussed tonight. So follow along and spread the word. Thank you for listening.